Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever been in these situations at work or maybe back, uh, maybe as a student, uh, but you know, there's like forced community building activities, and uh, whenever they give the instructions, you're like, really? Do we really have to do this? How important is this? Well, I heard of a new one this week, uh, and it was everyone was given a sheet of paper, and it had three words on it. It said, I failed when, dot, dot, dot. Then you had 30 minutes to fill the thing out. And then you got back together and you shared with one another. Now, I said I heard about it. I did not say that I did it. Because I think if I had to do it, I would have had a complete and utter panic attack. See, I I think we all have this uneasy relationship with failure, don't we? I mean, there's a museum exhibit making the rounds. It's called the Museum of Failure. In this exhibit, there are 159 failures. And that includes the following. Uh, There's a phone uh, that was created by Nokia. You've probably never heard of it. It's called the taco phone. And you're supposed to hold the narrow edge as you talk on it. It's the weirdest looking thing you've ever seen. Then there's those Google smart glasses. You guys remember those? The Google smart glasses, uh, they're, they're, they're this kind of creepy surveillance tech. And it never took off because I think it's creepy surveillance tech. Uh, one of the 159 uh, failures that they have, one's called Rejuvenique. It's a beauty mask that you put on that tones your facial tissues with electricity. It doesn't work. Then there's the car, the DeLorean. It's uh, famous uh, for it being included in Back to the Future. It's not famous because it was actually a decent car. Uh, it's marketed as a luxury car, but it has this severely underpowered engine. That makes it a really slow car, even though it looks like it would be really fast. It also was painfully cl- hard to keep clean because it's got this stainless steel panel that you constantly have to polish. But the stated goal of this exhibit, according to its curators, is to inspire us to take meaningful risk. Sounds like that Thomas Edison quip we've all heard, innovation needs failure. We all know that Thomas Edison failed a thousand times before he was able to create the functioning light bulb. But this improvement-oriented mission by the curators of the Museum of Failure clues us in to the way our culture works. See, I think the mission, it seems to undercut what's so magnetic about this museum in the first place. I think what makes this museum so magnetic isn't that it inspires me to take risks. I think what's so magnetic about it is because it lets me know that I'm not the only one who's ever failed. We live in a world that's awash with this success orientation. I was reading this uh, child psychologist this week, and her name is Madison Levine, and she spent 40 years in a clinic where Uh, She was a therapist to adolescents and their parents who are trying to navigate the difficulties of life. And from all her work, she started a nonprofit and it's called Challenge Success. She concludes by saying this. She says, there's a resilient myth about what constitutes success. And that myth goes as follows. If you go to the right school and you make the right grades then you go to the right college and you get into the right field and you make a certain amount of money, then you will be successful. But if success really was about how much money you made, then you ought to find very low rates of emotional problems and mental illness among the wealthiest of people. 
But that's not the case. She goes on to say that success has a very limited relationship with how much money you make. But isn't that how you think? That's how I think about parenting. If I'm being really honest, that's really what drives me day in and day out as a parent, is that that's what I'm trying to produce, but it doesn't work. And what's even worse than admitting this about the way we view raising children is that we also view this as the way spiritual life works. We bring all these ideas of success into our relationships with God and we think that success is total obedience, total commitment, unwavering belief, unending sacrifice on behalf of others, and doctrinal precision. And we think that's success. And when that's the case, we just don't have much room for failure, do we? Well, I want us to reconsider our definition of success by looking at Abraham once again. So let's read chapter 15 together, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And God brought Abraham outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And God said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot, And a flaming torch passed through these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The word of the Lord. If you were here last week, we looked at chapter 14. And in chapter 14, if you remember that Abraham had accomplished something quite great, didn't he? 
I mean, he pulled off something amazing. He, he had defeated these four powerful kings who were from the east, from modern-day Turkey and Iraq and Iran. And Abram goes in with 318 of his own men and defeats them so that he might rescue his beloved son Lot, who was captured. So here he is, Abram, he's with these military exploits. He's famous. And when he goes into the battle, he's already rich. So now he's rich and famous. And you'd think he'd be riding high. You'd think he'd be having the good life, right? But that's not what we see in verse 1. What we see in verse 1 and 2 and 3 really is that Abraham's got a lot going on inside of him. He's likely thinking that he's just a fraud. I mean, he probably thinks he just got lucky and he had this spurt of virtue and strength. And he, he doesn't think it can be sustained. He, he's also probably a little scared. I mean, he's got these four kings who would like to now exact revenge on his head for conquering them. So God comes to Abraham in all his insecurity and all his fear and he gives him reassurance right there in verse 1. And God tells him not to fear. He says, do not fear. And he says, I'm going to be your shield. And when God said he's going to be Abraham's shield, he's committing to protect Abraham and defending. Then he says he's Abraham's reward. And it's really quite the condescension if you think about it. Because God had to come to him in this vision and tells him these things he already knows, but it doesn't work. Abraham, in spite of his fear, in spite of his insecurity, he's also really, really sad and frustrated. And that's why he makes the complaint that he does in verses 2 and 3. In verses 2 and 3, he doubts God's ultimate goodness because here he is. Though he's rich, though he's famous, he's still childless. It makes Abraham look weak, doesn't it? It makes him look like a failure doesn't it? I mean, if you really consider it, God made this original promise that he's going to give Abraham lots of offspring in chapter 12, verse 2. He does it again in chapter 12, verse 7. He does it a third time in chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. God's been loud and clear about his promises to Abraham, but Abraham isn't so sure that God is telling him the truth. Have you ever been there? And I'm going to risk being overly simplistic here and say that there are really two ways that the church usually deals with doubt. I mean, that's what's going on with Abraham. He's not so sure that God is for him. And one of the ways that the church deals with doubt is that it claims doubt to be evil. And when the church calls doubt evil, it's, it's discouraging anyone from expressing their doubts. Its environment is one that prizes certainty. And when that's the case, the doubters keep their questions to themselves. They repress their doubts. And I think it's really sad because if you deal with your doubts, you can come to a deeper place of conviction. You can have greater compassion for others who are doubting. But when your doubts don't have a place in the community of faith, then that deeper conviction and that compassion for others can't exist. I think it's also sad when you claim doubt to be evil because what happens is the doubters leave. And the doubters go find a place that feels safe to them. This is one way of viewing doubt. The other way to view doubt is to hold it up as a virtue. It's almost like a badge of honor. It's seen as being authentic. It's welcomed with enthusiasm. 
In this way of, of viewing doubt, what, what it's hoping, hoping to do is to engender humility among the community. But I don't think it produces that. I, I think it in generally engenders smugness instead. See, doubts are seen as something to embrace instead of something to work through, which usually transforms our doubt into hardened belief. So which do you usually fall into? Are you usually ones who demand certainty? Are you one who overvalues doubt? See, here's what's normal. Doubt is. Doubt is what's normal for Christians. You should highly suspect those in the church who are sold out and certain. See, healthy doubt, it leads to prayer like it did for Abraham. See, Abraham's essentially saying to God, God, how can I trust you? I mean, he's saying the same thing we see in Mark 9. In Mark 9, you have this man who has a son who has died and he comes to Jesus, the father does, and says, can you heal my son? And Jesus says, do you believe that I can? The father responds, he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. See, belief and doubt, they aren't mutually exclusive. They often coexist, and this is exactly what we see in Abraham. You see his doubt in verse 2. You see doubt again in verse 8. But this time it's not about his son. It's about getting the land. Both are promises that God gave Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis. You got his doubts two places in chapter 15. But you also see him with faith there in verse 6. That he believes that God's going to fulfill his promise about his son. And then you see Abraham's belief in verses 9 to 11 as he does exactly what God tells him to do. And so from this episode, from chapter 15 of Genesis, you can draw some conclusions about how we are to deal with our doubt. First, you see that God welcomes doubters. He's not offended by them. In fact, he's often very tender with them. See, God knows it takes spiritual energy to take your doubts to him and he honors that. He doesn't want you to suffer in silence with your despair and your doubts. He wants to come to you in prayer. And he wants you to work through those things in the community. I think we see something else. We see that God never encourages our doubt. He can work with it, but he doesn't encourage it. In fact, he challenges Abraham to grow in his faith in verse 4. And then he takes Abraham outside in verse 5 and says, count the stars, because the number of stars that you can count will be the number of children that you will bear. So you put all this together and you can see that this provides a third way to deal with doubt that critiques those who shame doubters and it critiques those who make doubt a virtue. But this whole view of doubt and faith really isn't the point of the text. The point of the text you see in verses 9 to 21. And this scene is meant to build Abraham's faith. And it's much like when God sees Abraham in the first scene in verses 1 to 6, where God takes Abraham outside, says, count the number of stars, that's the number of children you have. He makes another visual here in 9 to 21. Except this visual is a lot more strange to us than the star counting. It's strange because it's violent and gruesome. Because Abraham takes this variety of animals, he cuts them in half, and he puts them in two rows. It's a bloody scene. 
But this time it's not. For Israelite worship, that's usually what we see with blood and animals in the Old Testament. But this isn't about worship. This is about making a contract. This is about making a covenant. Now think about how you use contracts. I mean, being a pastor, the contract I deal with the most is a wedding contract, right? It's the one I'm familiar with, and undoubtedly someone will give it to me at the reception, and I've got to get five signatures on that thing. I've got to get the bride, the groom, and I've got to get two witnesses. Then I put my own on there. A lot of times what I like to do is get the bride and groom to sign it. Then I find the two most random people in the room to be the witnesses. Sometimes it's supposed to be, sometimes they'd like it to be the parents, they'd like it to be somebody in the wedding party, not me. The people they barely know. That's what I'm looking for. But you got five signatures on that contract. And see, the purpose of that contract is to be the basis on which the marriage stands. You take the contract and you take the vows and that's how you know that someone has committed to you in a marriage. But for Abraham, this writing culture didn't exist. They didn't do contracts with pieces of paper and writing utensils. Instead, they did things visually. And they would do contracts just like we see here in verse in chapter 15. See, what they would do is that they're acting out visually the consequences of unfaithfulness in front of everybody. And so they take animals, they cut them in half, just like Abraham does here. And then you have both people who are making the contracts essentially lock arms and walk between the animals who have been cut in half. And when they would walk through them, what they're saying visually is that if they don't fulfill their end of the bargain, may they be like these animals. See, what they're doing is they're acting out the curse. And every single person in the ancient Near East would have understood exactly what Genesis 15 is all about. In our passage, you've got these animals, these two rows of animals, and See, what did you see in verse 17? What goes through? What goes through these two objects, the smoking pot and flaming sword? What's that all about? Seems strange. But in the Hebrew, the exact same words for smoking pot and flaming sword are the same words we see used for the presence of God when the Israelites are in the desert. This is what you see for the, the smoke That was on Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments were given to Moses. It's the same words for the the, the fiery pillar that led the Israelites through the desert. These were the objects that stood for God's presence. And these two objects are communicating to Abraham and the original hearers of Genesis and now to us that God is making a guarantee to the verbal promises he made to Abraham in chapter 12. What God is saying is, I have promised to bless you. I promise to bring salvation to the world. And if I don't do what I say, may I be destroyed and ripped in pieces just like these animals. See, if Abraham would have passed through those two rows of animals, he would be saying the same thing, but he doesn't. Abraham doesn't lock arms with a smoking pot and the fiery sword. It's just those two objects going through. Abraham just watches this whole thing take place. 
He's really just a passive, a passive observer, not an active participant. God doesn't ask Abraham to pass through there. So it's stunning to Abraham because he doesn't go through. He knows that God is saying, I'm going to pay the penalty if I fail. And I'm going to pay the penalty if you fail. God is and when Abraham sees this, something's awakened in him. It's gripped him to the core because God is making an unconditional, unilateral covenant with him, which means that God's commitment to Abraham was deeper than he had ever imagined. Abraham could fail at every point, and God's still going to fulfill his promises to him. I mean, this Abraham, the, the, the person that God's making this commitment to, this is the same guy who lied to Pharaoh about his wife. This is the same guy who subjected his wife to great harm. This is the guy whose only words in all of Genesis 15 are doubt. He's not righteous in conduct at all. The better descriptor for Moses is unrighteous. But what we see in verse 6 is that Abraham is made righteous. He believes what God says. And when God went between the animals, he knew that God was paying for his unrighteousness. That's how committed God was to Abraham. And here's our question this morning. How committed is God to you? See, this is so obvious to Abraham. He understands what these severed animals mean. He knew what the smoking pot and flaming sword went, meant. It's vivid for him. And the only way it could become more vivid is if God took on human nature. And if God would have tasted death in the place of Abraham, the covenant breaker. And brother and sister, this is precisely what God did in Christ for you. See, it was on the cross that the covenant curse that fell upon Jesus did so so that you, the guilty one, me, the guilty one, so that when we place our trust in him, that we would experience all the blessings of the covenant. Jesus bore the punishment for your sins so that God might be your God and you might be his person. This is the good news of the Christian's faith. God is committed to failures. <laughs> and no matter how much you doubt, no matter how much you fail, God's still committed to you. You can't doubt too much to nullify God's solemn oath on your life. He sealed it and you can't unseal it. You're not strong enough. The only thing you have to do is square your shoulders to your failure status. And I know that might be news to you. This is, isn't what you thought the church was all about. This isn't what you thought the Bible was all about. This isn't what you thought God was all about. But it is. The gospel says that God intervenes to cheer failures, and doubters. Will you be cheered this morning? Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, cheer our hearts. Lord, that you did all that was required, both on your part and even on ours. And so, Lord, we want to look upon you, look upon your cross, look upon your life, that we might be made righteous. Oh, Lord, do this work in our hearts this morning. In Christ's name, amen.